Good morning. Good to see you all. I, I know it got foggy this morning, and last week was rain in the air show. I was letting, you know, Costa Mesa, the home of the excuse, right? It's like, what do we have going on this week that's going to distract? But you guys fought through the fog. You made it here. Maybe you're still in a fog. Some of you are still in a fog. Did you bring the fog with you? You still have a little? No? This, the front row is perfectly clear about it. No fog here. I, I, I don't like the weather either way, but I get so focused on Sunday. Like, I just think that all week long, God's been giving me this message, and I've been thinking about who it's for, and I love standing out front. I do. You guys know that I've been doing that my whole life. That's assimilation. That's my heart. But to hear you guys walk in this morning and to hear 50%, 70% of the stories of you guys walking in this morning about what you've been struggling with and how you've been praying and how your mind has been doubting and all these different things, I can't help but tell you guys that that helps encourage me so much to get to a message that's two and a half hours long because it's all about prayer and it's all about doubt. Some of you are like, wait a minute. It's, you know, we wait all week long for the good news of, of, of God's word, right? It's like, why should we put a time constraint on it? Well, because we do, because we all have things to do and I get that, but it's a little bit longer today. I'm going to try to rip through it. If I don't have enough time, I may not finish the last part, although it's pretty good. But uh, I want to give you some warning. I mean, let's just stop. I'm on my humor aside. Let's stop and realize this morning, as you woke up, the world as we know it, once again, is turbulent, right? I can't help but have some conversation with you guys about Israel this morning, right? Whether we want to be involved with what's happening in the world or not, it continues to creep in. So when a message like prayer and doubt is the focal point of the message for me all week long. I just want to do something with you guys this morning and remind you. We have to be really careful. I'm going to cut to the end of the message really quick for you, and then I'm going to explain it all today. But when we pray and we ask God for something, we're not saying, do this, right? We're not mandating to God, do this. Just because our heart really wants peace in Israel. Because our heart really wants peace everywhere, right? We don't pray to God to mandate or tell him what to do. It's never worked like that. We, like Jesus, and say, not our will be done, but your will be done, Father, in this. We simply cry out to Abba. We simply cry out to our Father that these things bother us, and these things are heavy on us, and you already know our hearts. Please do not let us be distracted by these things that have to come. It's going to come, right? Whether we pray or whether we not pray, whether you bury your head in the sand and you run away from it, you're not going to stop what's about to happen. And what's about to happen, church, is going to get a lot worse. So rather than be so distracted, overwhelmed by it, we have to be able, like the early church, to pray and then in faith and confidence believe that whatever God says or whatever God does, that we make peace with it. And I think the message today will really help kind of bring that to you. I also want to encourage you with this. Last week, we had our first membership class in over three and a half years, four years. And we had 14 people there, which is a huge number for us. It was a small number in church. Yeah, give it up for God. That was good. And it was actually great because there's some more people that wanted to come that couldn't come. So we are going to do another membership class on November 5th. If you've been to a membership class and you're good, you have it all down, then please, you're good. But if you haven't been to a membership class in a while with me, I rewrote some of the material for the church and really kind of simplified it. Think of it like a butcher, like Tony the butcher, trimming all the kind of other things that were there and just getting it down to the filet. I want the church to be really clear about what God has called us to do and what the priority of every day should be. And along with that, you're going to hear this a lot. Keep the main thing the main thing. 
Okay? We go, we make, we baptize, and we teach. If we see that as the priority of everything we do and say, then no matter what happens in the world, no matter what kind of support we get or don't get, our joy is not going to come from the left or from the right. It's going to come from God's word every week. Amen? So let me pray this morning. Pray that God encourages you. Thank you for making the time, making the energy, and the effort to be here. I know that prayer is something that all of us kind of take for granted. So when you see this message today and the humanity of this message, once again, God's word is so good to actually write it the way that it occurred. I pray that you will be strengthened and encouraged this morning. Father God, we come to you, and we know that your people, our people, the world's people, whether they see it or not, Israel, Father, is once again under attack. And we know that we need to be supportive to that. You, you make it clear in, the, in your word, whoever supports them will be supported by you. And yet we think about some of the things that are happening there. We think about some of the things that are happening in our own nation. And our hearts break. And it's not an easy thing to see people have such animosity towards one another. But we know, Father, that these things are, are, are all part of your will. And whether we understand it, you know, that's a component of the message even today. Whether we understand your will or your sovereignty in something in life, Father, I pray this morning that your encouragement would be this. I will never leave you or forsake you, okay? Who by worrying is added one day? Do you see the sparrows? Do they lay up? How much more precious are you, church, than the sparrows? We, we have a loving Father who's covering us. We have a Spirit of God who's trying to lead us. And so we pray for those this morning who will wake up and have no homes and have lost loved ones. We know what that feels like. We felt that ourselves in 9-11. Father, I pray that the church continues to be a source of encouragement and hope. But I also pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that we emphatically believe whatever you say and however it works out and make peace with it. We do it all this morning in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. So this morning we're going to find out about Jameses. There's lots of Jameses in the Bible. There's lots of Marys in the Bible. And we're going to find out about Herod. Lots of Herods in the Bible. Herod's a title. And we're going to find out what happens in the church in Acts 12, 1 through 19. Acts 12, 1 through 19. Now what's happening here is Herod just had John the Baptist beheaded earlier. And Herod is trying to make war with the Gentiles. He's trying, to, he's trying to make war with anyone that would try to promote the name of Jesus. And it's pretty simple why Herod wants to do that. Herod's name is Herod the Great, okay? It's his grandfather, Herod the, excuse me, Herod the Great was his grandfather, was the one who tried to have Jesus killed. This is actually his grandson, Herod Agrippa the one. But every Herod thinks of himself as being great, as the leader. So anytime the people are having their hearts go towards another leader, okay, spiritual or not, it's a problem for him. He wants the people to love him. Matter of fact, he's willing to do whatever it takes for the people to love him at whatever cost. And if we do get to the end of the passage, the last three or four verses are going to remind us that even when it seems like the world's winning, even when it seems like the Herods of the world are winning, that God still has the final say. And like I said, if I get to the final point, you're going to see how absolutely powerful that is. So the situation is simply this. There's a power struggle going on. Okay? The church in Jerusalem is growing. The church in Jerusalem is where the birthplace of Christianity starts. They're all Jews that are being converted. And during the first 8 to 15 years after Jesus' death, things are percolating. Things are popping. And what's happening now is in the last few chapters, we see this new church, this new spearhead being developed in Antioch. Now, it's Antioch of Syria. Once again, I explained to you last week, there's lots of Antiochs. 
because Antiochus was a king, and so because when you captured a city, you wanted to name it after someone, there was lots of them. So they subnamed them Herod, excuse me, Antioch of Syria to let you know where this one was. Unfortunately, this particular group of people is very, very secular. A matter of fact, as I mentioned to you last week, they had pagan rituals in their, in their church, but yet God decides to use them and have this Gentile converts come into play. And so Herod's hearing about how the word of God is moving. And remember, the word of God had to start in Jerusalem, move to Samaria, but ultimately the mandate is that it made it to the ends of the earth, right? And so all of a sudden it seems like it's starting to have that kind of movement. So because this is happening, he says, you know what I know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the head of the church in Jerusalem, James. Now, once again, James, when I say James, often we think of Jesus' brother, James, but I'll clarify a little bit more for you about the Jameses in a minute. Okay, so he's going to take the leader of the church, James, he's going to bring him in, and he's going to have him beheaded. Now, this is a really powerful way of killing someone and of telling everyone there's no opportunity for coming back from this, right? Because they've stoned people before in the past, right? They've done all these different things, and sometimes there's been a survival rate to that. So there's nothing more powerful for a, for a Herod to do to the people than to behead their leader, right? You cut them off, and they're no longer able to speak. So he thinks, what's going to happen with that? The Sanhedrin respond by saying, we affirm you. So then he goes after, and he arrests Peter, and he thinks, you know what? I'm going to do this to Peter now, too. I got the head of the Jerusalem church. I got the guy who's kind of inspired the Antioch church. If I can get both these guys and cut them off then maybe like what my father, my, you know, my grandfather did with Jesus, if you cut off the Jesus, right, the followers will go away. He couldn't have been any more wrong, right? That not only didn't happen then, and it wasn't going to happen now. But he continues to have this animosity towards Christians. So he brings them all in and fired up with his love for the Sanhedrin and for being loved by the people. He says, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have Peter beheaded. Unfortunately for him, there's a festival going on, the festival of the unleavened bread. Okay? And because the festival is going on, he doesn't want to do it that because it ends with Passover. And you know what happens at Passover, the same thing that happened with Jesus. The people can cry out for someone who's been in prison to be released, right? So he's thinking about former experiences. He's like, okay, they might cry out for Peter to then be released. So he says, I'm just going to wait till the festival's in. I'm going to wait till everything clears, and then I'm going to have him killed. And because I can have him killed, then what will happen? The question is, is how much power will I gain from the people? How much more support will I have from the people if I remove these troublesome people that are causing all the things? So what's going to happen is he gets arrested, Peter gets arrested, the church now realizes that one leader has already been killed and one leader has been in prison. What are they going to do? The church rallies. We're going to read here in one second. The church is going to rally and pray. But what happens when they rally and pray? I'm, I'm telling you, this is the most, it's funny. The story is actually a little bit humorous for me. So I hope you're ready for a little humor today because it's actually pretty funny. So uh, I'm going to read. We're going to go from uh, 1 through 19, I think. It's what this initial passage is. And, uh, and the passage I put, just kind of a reminder. If you think you've had a problem with weak faith before, you're in good company. This is an account of the initial church. This is less than 15 years after Jesus' death burial and resurrection, and yet this account happened exactly how the Word of God says it did. Starting in verse 1. Now about that time, King Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church to do harm to them, and he had James, the brother of John, executed with the sword. Like I said, I'll give you a little bit more information on that in one minute. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. These were the days of the unleavened bread. 4. And when he arrested him and he put him in prison, he turned him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. 
intending only after the Passover to bring him before the people. As I mentioned to you, right, Passover, they didn't want him to be, um, to be released. So Peter was kept in prison, prison, and the prayer for him was being made by the church of God intensely. On the night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over him. So remember, he has four, 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 sixteen watching him. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near Peter, and a light shone in his cell, and it struck Peter's side, and it woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And then his chains fell off his hands. And then the angel said to him, Put on your belt strap and your sandals. And so he did. He wrapped his cloak around me, and he followed him. Verse 9. He went and continued. Sorry about that. He went out and continued to follow, and yet he did not know what was being done by the angel, if it was real, or if he's simply having another vision, right? He's had visions before. Is this another vision? Now, when they had passed the first set of guards, then the second set of guards, they came to a very large iron gate that leads into the city. I added the very in there because the Antonio fortress that he's being held in is massive. I tried to find a picture of it, but because it was iron gates, they had rotted out, and all it was was this large opening, and it just wasn't as powerful, but it's a very, very large gate. So it would have been a very large iron gate. It comes into the city. It opens by itself, and they went out into one street. Amazing. And immediately then the angel departed from him, verse 11. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has set his angel for me and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and what they were expecting. And when he realized this, he went into the house of Mary. Once again, I'm going to give you a bunch more on that because Mary's, John's, and James, there's a lot of them, who was also called John Mark. And inside there was gathered many together and praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a slave woman named Rhoda came to answer She recognized Peter's voice. Because of her joy, she did not open the gate. She ran and announced that Peter was standing in the front of the gate. And they said to her, you were out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they said, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and they were amazed. And motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had let him out of prison. And then he said, report these things to James and to the other brothers. And then he went to another place. Now, this is going to be a serious test for the early church, right? To have your leaders killed and to have all this different attacking going on. And it's also going to be an incredible thing because James is not just any James. This, there's two Jameses in the apostle group, James the greater and James the lesser. I'm glad they decided to use math terms for those. It would have been nice if they used other acronyms for all the other Jameses. Jesus' brother, remember, is not an apostle. Does Jesus' brother believe in him while he's alive? No, right? So he's not an apostle. An apostle is, by definition, an eyewitness to Jesus. So the apostles, Jameses, are the greater and the lesser. And we only know them by their definition. So James the greater is the one that we're talking about here. He's part of the inner three. The inner three are James, Peter, and John, okay? The apostle, the son of Zebedee, and the brother of John, and the moderate apostle. So this is what's going to give its indication is that he's not the other James. And that's important because the other Jameses are still going to have a key role, especially Jesus' brother, James. By the way, James is, uh, Jesus' brother is James the Less. Uh, James, excuse me, James the Just. I can't put my glasses on her, right? Yeah, James the Just. So it's James the Greater, James the Less, and James the Just. I don't know about you, but that's a lot, but there's probably at least two more Jameses in the Bible. 
So if it helps. And Marys are at least the same thing, five Marys. So James's and Marys are going to be tough for you. Anyways, with, er- with this situation, Herod sees that the apostle James is now gone. He's made some ground with the people. He's going to think, as soon as I kill Peter, all these people are going to scatter, and I'm going to finally have the control I want. That's not going to be the case. Okay? What's going to happen is he's going to increase the attacks on the people, and by doing this, the people are going to rally. And what do the people rally with? Prayer. So church, this is a good first point for us. What do we do when the increase, when the attacks begin to increase us? We should rally in prayer, okay? The prayer of a righteous person availeth much, right? From the prayer of one man, the rain was stopped for two years, right? I mean, that's something that we can think about. How powerful is your one prayer? How powerful are you? Someone told me this morning, oh, we're praying for you. And I always have the same response to anyone who says they're praying for me. I says, I know. That's the reason why I'm here, right? I, I don't believe that prayer is anything other than miraculous, and it's doing things that we can't understand. And so the church has gone to the place that they've always gone before, to this kind of upper room, and they're going to sit there, and they're going to rally, and they're going to pray. Why? Because the increased attack on them is letting them know something. This way that you're going is having too much influence, and the followers that you're having are starting to listen to Jesus more than they're listening to Herod, and that's unacceptable, so it must be stopped. And what an interesting thing, what a violent end to James, right, to have him beheaded. But I th- I'm thinking this, uh, you think about when people want to be violent today, one of the most violent ways you see in what, what some of these other people groups is beheadings, right? Remember that during the Iran-Contra thing? That was something they were constantly doing is beheading Christians. So not new. It has been going on from the beginning. It's just simply trying to have a power struggle between you and that opposing group to say, your voice will never be heard again. Your actions that you once caused will never be heard again. And it's definitely a way of that individual kind of trying to say, usurp and say, we are, the, we are the final authority. It's interesting also because this is the first recorded death of an apostle martyred for the word of God. And from this point on, all of those who are going to be martyred for the faith, I mean, they're going to really take it to a whole new level of how they're willing to kill an apostle. Um, burned in oil, okay? This is one of the ways they're going to go, being quartered. Quartered sounds pretty painful, right? Um, That's when four horses get one body part, one arm, one arm, one leg, one leg, and the four horses go in opposite directions. Anything and everything they do can to, to, to make that individual completely seem powerless against this Herod. And that's what Herod's all about. He's about establishing through this death and through this thing is that I am the sole source of your power. I am the sole source of your information. And Herod's have been in control for thousands of years. And like I said, as I continue to read through this passage, if we make it to that final passage in 21, you're going to find out that Herod has something coming and the Lord will reconcile it very soon. So let's jump down to verse 3. When Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he's like, what else can I do to continue to please the Jews? Pleasing the Jews is pleasing the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the group that's kind of, you know, firing all this stuff up. The Sanhedrin is the group that sent Saul out originally to kill Christians before his conversion. The Sanhedrin has been the driving force for this whole thing. They believe Christianity is in direct uh, opposition to Judaism, and so they're willing to do whatever it takes to stop it. But thankfully, the Lord had this uh, festival going on, and the festival gave just a small window of opportunity for Peter to be placed in jail, which actually ends up being a blessing, so they have to wait till it's over. Now, politically speaking, uh, the Sanhedrin is powerful enough to kind of have anything they want done. So if they have the power of Herod and and the spiritual power of the Sanhedrin, they're completely, in their minds, in control of Israel. But what I love about this whole thing is the church needs to realize something. In this kind of overwhelming situation where the leader and the ruling religious leaders were both kind of in cohorts to be against them, God continued to move. 
So I think that's another point we can use for today. We see right now that the leaders, maybe we think the leader, I'm not one to even talk about politically about what's going on, but you see the leader today, and then you kind of see the ruling people with them, and you see this kind of cohort where they seem to be kind of in agreement about how they want to do things. And my sense is I feel overwhelmed, and I want to do something about it. But I have to fall back on something like this, especially after a week like this, and think, what we probably need to do is what the church did here, is just fall back to what we have. Our holy ground for, for us is the church. Fall back together to your small groups and to the church and to pray and to ask God to intercede because what we're going to see in the end is God answers. All right, moving to verse 4. After the arrest, he's placed in prison with four squads of soldiers to watch him. So this is 16. How does this work? Well, he has two guys watching him while he's sleeping. He has a guy on his left and a guy on his right. Then he has two guys watching him inside of the jail. And then he has four guys watching him outside of the door. And then there's four guys outside of the prison. So he has an entire conglomeration of people watching him. And I'm wondering, why do you think it became so significant for Herod to place so many people around him? And then I couldn't help but think about this. Do you recall what happened when Jesus' body was stolen from the grave? Do you remember that? Remember, this is only 8 to 14 years after Jesus' death. We're talking about Roman guards. We're talking about the Antonio Fortress. We're talking about Roman guards. We're talking about people doing something. And I guarantee you that what happened with Jesus, they're flashing back. So they're thinking, we had to, we had to bribe the guards last time to say that they fell asleep. So what we're going to do this time is we're going to put so many guards around and there's just no way that it can happen. That's, that tells you how significant they thought it was. Yet Peter's not only going to be uh, arrested, but the Lord's going to work it out for him to be released. As we find out later on, Peter actually will, was in jail back in Acts chapter 4, and he was released miraculously by God. So for him, this is just another opportunity to ask God, what are you planning on doing with this whole thing? Remember, Jesus had told him, you're going to die on a crucifix when you're old. So he had already been told how he was going to die and when he was going to die. So for him, I think he's feeling a little bit confident. Yeah, I'm in jail, but I don't feel older. It's only been 14 years. I don't think the Lord's ready for me. We'll see. But what happens? Verse 5 says this. Then Peter's in prison. The church prays. And how does the church pray? Fervently. Okay, I don't know. You guys using fervent? You guys using that word a lot? Not has I've used fervent this week. I'm fervently going to Del Taco. I know that. I'm fervent about fishing. Um, I'm fervent about my grandson. I just saw my grandson go into the, um, the thing, Sunday school across the street. We're not really using fervent. So what's a word that we can... It's intense or to deeply pursue. Intense or deeply. So I don't know how you feel about prayer. I'm, I'm, some people, I think, think of prayer more as something we do. Just like tithing. It's just, oh, something that we do. And not really understanding the value or the significance of it. But let me just clarify something. If one man prayed and held the rain, okay, how, how worthy of prayer is it to be intense or fervent about it? You're, you woke up this morning and you're overwhelmed and you're seeing all this stuff going on and you're like, okay, I'm mad, I'm angry. Okay, we've been mad and we've been angry for it. But have you intensely or fervently purposed time in prayer to cry out to the Lord? Um, I think another thing that's not even mentioned here, but I'm definitely going to throw it out. You know, we've also got away from any of the disciplines of like fasting or any of the disciplines that kind of help us see the value of what we're asking for. Um, There's been times in my life and there's been habits in my life that have been overwhelming and distracting. And one of the things, one of the disciplines that I think that has been beneficial for me is to fast. 
Now, with my kidney situation, fasting is a little bit more regulated. But for you, here's fasting. Does fasting always mean food? No. Okay? Fasting can be anything in your life that takes such time or consumes so much of your thought that from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, it's something that you're looking forward to. So what are some things people have that kind of, their phone. I think today that the phone is something that people, a good 24-hour fast would do you good. Maybe not your business, but it would do you good, spiritually speaking. I mean, what about food things like, I mean, some people coffee, right? I mean, just, I don't know about you guys, but I love coffee, but some people, like, from the time I wake up in the morning, like, I know, 4.35 in the morning, sometimes the only thing that's getting me going is I want to go down there and get my donut shop coffee, right? But sometimes something as simple as what I want, what my need is, can be a really beneficial thing for me to go down there in the morning and put that coffee back on the thing and say, you know what, I'm not going to drink any coffee today. And if I do get a coffee headache or something happens, I'm going to be reminding myself there's greater needs in my life that I need to focus on. And I'm going to fervently focus on that. So what you do then is whatever you choose to fast from for the day, whether it's a day, two days, or whatever it is, when that item then pops back up in your mind and the mandate is go, get that thing you want. Go get that thing that you always do. Go do the thing you... It could be working out. You could be a chronic working out individual. When that thing then pops back into your mind, you say, no, for the sake of a cause, for the sake of something that God has placed on my heart, I'm going to fervently spend time in prayer. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person availeth much, and you have greatly underestimated the power of prayer. But the church is praying, and something's happening, and what's going to happen is this. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to what? their prayer. So Peter and, and the church is affirming something, that God has the opportunity to hear this, and verse 6 records this. The answer to their prayers is Peter will be rescued unscathed. That does not mean from this point on that all your prayers should be that God um, answers our request. It just simply means that whatever you have that's overwhelming, you should always present to the Lord. Then regardless of how the Lord works it out, you should have faith that that's what the Lord's will is, and that's what he's doing to accomplish it. This, uh, this idea of what Jesus prayed in the garden was a one-time thing. Jesus' prayer in the garden is crucial to us, right? Lord, if it's possible, if it's possible for this cup to pass, I see what's in the cup. If it's possible, wow, that's heavy. But if it's not possible, because what you have purposed in that cup is your will, then Jesus the Son of God submits His will to the Father's will. That's crucial to you and I. That's crucial for you and I to remember that. When we pray, and those things in our life that are becoming overwhelming, you have a wayward son, you have a wayward daughter, you have something in your life that is, const is the constant thorn. You need to purpose in that prayer the reminder that, Lord, if it's possible for this wayward child to come home today, then do it. But because of this wayward child, how much more is that keeping you in prayer? How much more value is that wayward child reminding you every day how grateful and thankful you are for your salvation and that you're not wayful? Where do they learn those way, you know, the ways to go about? They probably learn them from your sinful nature. And he wants the church leaders to know something. As the church grows persecution follows. As the church grows, persecution follows. If, we start, if the church starts growing and something starts popping off in this church, I guarantee you there will be something. Maybe with the building across the street, God only knows with that whole permitting process. If you're a contractor, maybe we should pray for you this morning. I am, I'm just not sure that there's any process more ridiculous than trying to get a permit to fix something that's broken. 
you know, we've already spent a ton of money to try to fix it. And you guys notice there's piles of materials starting to stockpile. I mean, we've done everything we can. And yet all we do is turn on the website every morning and see is there another check going down the thing. And there's not like four or five checks. It's like 13 checks have to be filled for you to, you to go fix your problem on your property, right? That's frustrating, Lord. But Lord, not my will be done. What, what can we show the city in this? What can I show the inspector who I've already put pictures up and thrown darts at in my spare time? <laughs> you know, what things could I be showing that inspector rather than seriously? Just let me fix the building. You know, we have little teeny kids that go to preschool, that love the school, that have told their parents something's wrong, the preschool. Some, it, it's affecting little kids. Like, right, it's like the micro worlds of stuff happening all around us. And I think, Lord, this is not fair. And he says, you know what, Jeff? If the church grows the attacks grow. If, you wanna, if your church is nice, calm, and happy, and doing nothing, guess what's going to happen? Nothing. Why would the devil attack that? So church, I'm grateful for all the adversity and the distractions and the things that happen. Apparently, we're doing something right, and God is doing something, so let's keep our head down and keep plowing. Here's a question for you. In the end, what happened in verse 7 is this. The angel stood next to Peter struck him on the side because he's so deep in sleep. I can only picture him in deep in sleep because he's not worried about anything. He wakes up. He just had a dream before about food. Remember the last time he had a dream about food? He woke up and the sheet came down and showed. I mean, this guy's a deep sleeper. This is great stuff too. This whole passage, from this point on, I mean, some of the insight about God's word, like sometimes just the clarity and how it's so down to earth. He says, okay, Peter, here's what I need you to do. Sleep. And then I'll have the angel stick a spear in your side to wake you up. And when you wake up, this is what I'm going to do for you. Your chains are going to fall off your wrist. The angel will then tell you to get dressed, like you needed help with that. Tell you to get dressed, give you instructions to follow him, and then he will lead you out to a giant iron door that will slowly and beautifully open for you. And all 16 of your guards will have nothing to do with it. But I want to ask you one question, Peter. What did you have to do with it? miracle, right? That's a miracle. That's just, what did Peter have to do with any component of those attributes? He went to sleep. He went to sleep trusting that if God had something to say, if God had something to do and he wanted to do it in his life, that he would do it. And then he's the deep enough sleep that he's having a hard enough time waking up that the, trying to wake him up, right? He's delusional. He's all these different things. What did he have to do to make those chains, those binders fall off his arm? Okay, church, there's got to be more to this. Sometimes we read stuff in the scripture and we're in a big hurry to get to the end of the passage. We're, we're in a big hurry to get out of church. But let's take a second. What binders are holding you right now? What's your, what's your handcuff? What's your thing? Don't yell it out. Don't yell it. Just think about it. We all have a thing. We've all had things. Some of us have two and three things. We have things that bind us, right? I asked Matthew Kenslow, the young man who did the juggling, I asked him to change a component of his little juggling show when he was talking about the card deck. I didn't like the card deck. I said, maybe you should bring those hoops. You know those big giant metal hoops they have and the hoops are together? And then use that as something symbolically to say, but what, what are you bound to? And then pull those apart. Like you, saw, you thought they were connected. It looked connected. You heard it connected, right? It's not magic, but somehow the idea is that it's, the rings are set free. And I, I feel like this is what this is coming. What's holding you back this morning? What's binding you? And what's telling you that you, you, you're in jail and this thing has you? And how desperately are you trying to break those chains? Are you worn out? Are you tired? Because you probably should get some sleep. 
Matter of fact, you probably should get some really good deep sleep. And in that deep sleep, this is what I encourage you to pray about. Lord, not my will be done, but if you want me bound in jail in the scope of what I could be doing and what I've already done for you, if this is the best use of your time, then so be it. What do you want to show me? I'm obviously here for a reason. What do you want to show me bound in jail? Because waking up and having those chains fall off was not just symbolic. I think it's a reminder to us that if you're spending your time and your energy trying to get free from the very thing that's already, you probably put the chains on yourself. The chances of you getting out are probably slim and none. The only way you're going to be freed from your chains is to ask the Lord to move and ask the Lord to reveal. And when he does drop those chains, please, for the love of God, don't pick them back up. Right? That's not martyrdom to put them back on and say, but that's my thing, and I'm going to do it. No, if the Lord wants to set you free from something, put on your clothes and go. That's powerful for me. I can't help but think about all the different things this week, and I've prayed about with people, the chains that are holding people back. Marital issues, drug issues, alcohol issues, anxiety issues, stress issues. They're chains that we kind of put on ourselves. And then we sit and cry to the Lord that we're in chains and we're in prison. It's like, that's not for you to cry about. There's something to be done in this prison. And when the Lord removes you from that and he has a new exposure to you, he's going to walk you down to the middle of the street. And then what's going to happen as the angel walks him down to the middle of the street and he's completely walked away from it all? The angel served his purpose and the angel goes away. The reality is that Herod has such an issue with believers that killing a believer makes him happy. It gives him power. Okay? If you're going to listen to God and you're going to find those moments where the word of God and the spirit of God is telling you to do something and you decide that when you pray, you're going to mandate to God, I need this done. Why aren't you doing it? What you need done is what he's doing. What you need to do is now, in what he's doing, make peace with it. It's a different mindset, right? It's not that we, we don't fight and we don't struggle. We fight and we struggle for the things that the Lord tells us to. But when it's our way that we're fighting for, when it's our struggle we're fighting for, and it imposes us something on our relationship with God, you need to let it go. He will free you. He will drop your chains. He will open the door. And he will walk you to the middle of the street and say, Go. I, when it's your time to die, I will let you know. But I already told you, you're not going to die until you're old. I just also love the fact that the angel has to tell him, put your clothes on and follow me. What, what was his options? Stay naked inside of the jail without his chains on and then hang out? I mean, I mean what, what's going through his mind? See, the humanity of some of these apostles and disciples and these followers of Christ is, is our humanity. See, the humanity of your struggle with your faith is my humanity. You know, how many of you have ever prayed for something? I mean, maybe even earnestly prayed for something, and then God gave it to you, and you still struggled with it. One of the things I shared in the membership class was, we are a small church, and as a small church, we can wear name tags, and we can know who's here and not who's here, and we can do all these different things. But as a small church, we do a really good job when you struggle to rally around people. If you let us rally around you, we will rally one of the most fabulous things about the women's ministry and the care ministry is that if you let us rally, we'll bring you food, we'll pray for you, we'll come hang out with you, we'll do a lot of different things. But you know what most people's response is to going through a difficult time? Back off. I, don't, I can't take that. I'm not charity, right? I work on those ministry teams. I'm not taking that. Really? 
So if we're not willing to take the love of God, then what are we actually taking in? We're taking on this onus that we are usurping the authority of God and usurping the idea that we care for one another, that we serve one another, and we're saying, no, I'll run the show myself. There's nothing more egotistical for us to do than to refute God's help when we struggle. We take it because when we need it and we get it, we're reminded of something. As soon as we get back on our feet and as soon as the Lord's guiding, we don't forget that. And now we go find others to go serve and to love. We go, we make, and we baptize, and we teach, and we remind them the same thing that's happening to you has happened to me. Let me share my story with you, and may that be a comfort to you. Here's my observation. There's been times in my life when I don't understand what God is doing. So my response is to what? You fill in the blank. There's been times in my life where God is doing something and I don't understand it. Is your response to put your clothes on and go follow him? Or is your response to stay in the jail and mess around with your shackles until you figure it out? How did this happen? And what's going on? Why would he do this? Why would he put me in jail and then take my chains? Right? I mean, think about this. This is how we do things. God doesn't want us to figure everything out. Here's a simple passage for you. You've said it a million times. My ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. They're higher. Why, why are you trying to figure out God? Why are you trying to figure out what an angel has done? Why are you trying to figure out a miraculous thing that God has done for you? You really think you could figure it out? No, I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening just in life in general, and I think they're really, really super complex. And just trying to figure those things out sometimes can be overwhelming. The fact that the stuff that comes out of me, we call the exhale, is the stuff that a tree eats and lives on. And then the tree eats that stuff that comes out of me, takes that stuff that we would kill us, our exhale would kill us. If you want to find out, shut your room off and see what happens, Right? And the tree eats that, and when the tree's done eating that, what does it do? Produces something that I can breathe. How's that evolution? Someone explain to me how's that evolution. Either the tree does that or the tree doesn't do that because we die. How about water? Let's talk about water. Oh, there's water everywhere. Really? There's really there's, what's around us is oceans. It's salt water. Of the drinkable water that's available to this planet, it's like under 7%. And under the 7% that's actually drinkable, 3%'s frozen. So where's all the drinkable water? Don't we need water every day to live? Well, the Lord happened to make a thing called the sun. Random. It's 93 million miles away. Anything closer, 1 million closer, or 1 million further, everything's done. The whole system's off. So it's exactly placed in such a way that it superheats the water that I can't drink, the ocean, and makes clouds. Clouds form weather conditions with the sun and all the other things that get blown over the land. They get over the land and they consolidate and rain forms. And from those clouds that absorb the moisture from the distilling of the salt water, it falls onto the earth. The earth, sand, rock, dirt, natural filtration. Underground percolation systems fill up with water. The reservoirs fill up with water and bubble forth in what we call streams and lakes and miscellaneous. And where does it all run? Back to the sea. Church, 
Evolution has never given you what the Lord has given you. It's been there the whole time. What you're struggling with and what they were struggling with and what you're going to see they're struggling with is that sometimes God provides the answer and it's right in front of us. It's faith to see what's in front of you that's done, that no one can change, that has nothing to do with evolution. Either it is or it isn't. How many animals in the animal kingdom are changing classes or species in front of us? None. How many have? None. How many will? None. The church wants to pray. The church wants to follow God. And the angel says, here's my observation. I'm going to show you things that you will not understand. May it not stop you from following God. Because what happens? 16 people are watching you. A heavy gate stands between you. The Antonio Fortress is one of the most protected jails in the history of mankind. And yet the reality is you're standing in the middle of the street and nobody's done anything. What was God walking you out of? Was he really walking you out of jail or was he walking you out of doubt? I think just as much as the church is going to be struggling here in a second with doubt, Peter might have been struggling. I thought you said I was going to die when I was older. He knows what's happening in the morning. He goes to bed at night. He knows what's happening in the morning. It's his time. And he already knows what's happened to his other brother, James. So when he's walking down to the middle of the street, verse 11 says, he finally comes to his senses. Really? All those things had to happen for you to come to your senses? You wonder why it's so hard for you and me to come to our senses? I mean, these guys watched Jesus live. They watched Jesus do miracles, and they struggled with their faith. And we're 2,000 years down the line, and we're wondering, why are we struggling with our faith? What is wrong with me? I'm so weak. Do you remember the dad who said to Jesus, help me believe? Why? Help me believe. I'm so weak. Help me, Jesus, to believe. These guys were right there. They know for a fact. And yet they're struggling to believe and have this faith that what God said is true. It's an angel. He's walked me out of the jail. I'm standing free. I'm in the middle. What other options do you have, Peter? So what are you going to do? Verse 12. Like any wise man, it says it dawned on him. I'm telling you the verbiage in this passage and what actually happens here, this is funny. This is why I know the word of God is true, because some of the stuff, you wouldn't have wrote it down this way, because it doesn't bode well for Peter. It looks a little bit silly. But it bodes well for me to remind myself that an angel just walked him out of jail and 16 guards watching him in shackles, and he's standing free in the middle of the road, and it's finally dawned on him that God might have done something. Okay, dense is the word that comes to mind, and normal comes to mind, because that's me, right? That's what I do. So what's he going to do? I'm going to go home. I'm going to go to where the people are. I'm going to where they know, I'm gonna go to where I know the people will gather. Why will the people be gathering? Because he believes the people will have gone back to Mary's house, okay? This is the Mary that has the upper room. This is the Mary that has the opportunity for the apostles to gather and have like a home base. And he's going to go there and tell them because he's actually worried about what they're thinking, He's coming to his senses. He's not worried about hiding yet. It seems like there might be some component, well, what, what I, should I do? And where should I go? What he's worried about is he's worried about the body of believers. Maybe he actually has a kind of a vision of like, I, I bet something's happening. I better go to where they're all at and let them know that I'm okay. 
Where should you go, church, when the Lord finally breaks you out of your chains and you need to let people know that you're okay? You should, you should go to the church. There's been a, recently we lost Ramsey. You guys remember Ramsey from the back row, one of the older gentlemen, Ron Ramsey, amazing guy. When Ramsey got sick two years ago and when COVID hit, Ramsey ran and he left. And when he left, a lot of the strength and support that he had left. And I was wondering where he was. So I drove to his house and I tried to talk to him and it didn't bode well. He was just saying, I'm scared. And then a few months later, I saw him walking down the street and he's walking down San Ann and he's pulling an oxygen tank, a little, a little thing, and he was, it was terrible. And I, I said, Lord, I want to pull over, should I? And he's like, stop talking and pull over. I pulled over, I rolled the window down, and I said, Ramsey, please, come home. Let us pray. Let the back row see you. We need to see you. We need to go through this with you, brother, please. I can't, he said. And he didn't. We're going to be doing his uh, memorial sometime in January. Cookie called the church and asked the church to do it. But I had a hard time when she asked me to do it because I felt like I tried for my brother desperately. And I felt like I failed him. So I told the elders, which is what I need to do when I need to go home and pray. I tell the elders and I say, guys, I don't know what to do. I, I don't do weddings and funerals for people that I don't know, that I, that I failed or something. I just can't do that. I'm not going to stand in front of God and try to. And they said, call somebody. Call Gary Rorden. Who's Gary Rorden? You mean the chair guy? Everybody knows Gary Rorden. Gary Rorden is his neighbor. And when I called Gary Rorden, you could hear this jovial spirit take over the conversation because Gary knew everything about Ramsey. And he said, I'm going to call Byron, and me and Byron will do it. So you just come and do the opening prayer, and we'll do this. This is going to be awesome. I love Ramsey. I have the greatest stories about him. I said, what kind of stories do you have about Ramsey? He was kind of crotchety, right? Angry about everything? He said, you don't know. Pastor Eric, in the first few months that he was here, was going to the small groups and trying to spend time with everybody. And he came into our small group and asked if there was anything we could pray about. And I said, yeah, my neighbor just found out he has cancer and it's pretty dire. And Pastor Eric, being the jovial, overtop person, he was like, let's go pray for him. And it's like right in the middle of a small group, which they had a lesson. And it was very inconvenient. And Gary Rodin said, right now, like, we have small group. Like, I thought you were just coming to observe the small group. He's like, no, we got to go. I can just picture Eric like, we got to go. And they went, so they believed. They followed Pastor Eric over there. And they prayed for Ramsey, who had just got this incredibly dire diagnosis. And the following week when he went in for his checkup, the doctor did an incomplete, thorough investigation and simply had one thing to say to Ramsey. I have no explanation for this, my friend, but everything that we knew and were planning on is gone. And there's no medical explanation for that. So if you have one, then you have one. But I don't think we're going to need to do chemotherapy or anything on you. I can find no cancer in your body. Was Ramsey a believer at the time? No. Zero belief. Did Ramsey come to an awareness in that office and did a switch flip? Oh, man, did he? And who did he want to run home and call? Gary Rorden. Byron and Pastor Eric and let them know. And that's what brought my brother to the back row of this church and sat him in that chair and made him faithful, faithful, faithful all those years. 
that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God had done something for him and his faith would not let him doubt it because he knew. Church, Peter's knocking on the door. He's going back to his people. He wants to see them. He knows something's happening. But look at the humanity of getting to the actual place where rescue is happening when a small servant girl named Rhoda comes to the gate and hears his voice. Hearing his voice and knowing that the church is inside praying for him, she loses her little servant mind and does not answer the door. She doesn't answer the door. Here's a wanted man who's going to be killed in the morning. And he's standing outside the door saying, it's me, it's Peter. And she's like, okay, I'll go tell him. And she runs in to tell them, it's Peter, the guy you're praying for, he's there. And Peter's standing at the door, I'm still there. What is going on in here? Because Peter's knocking fervently now, right? The church is praying for him. Peter's knocking fervently. It says she recognized his voice, was too excited, so she went to tell him, but he's still at the door. Verse 14 says, so Peter kept knocking. I almost went over that in my notes and thought, okay, get to verse 15. That's really. And then the Lord said, really? I think that's a whole other message right there. You ever been knocking on the door and thought God was answering something, but you were still at the door? Five minutes later, 10 minutes later, a week later, a year later. Sometimes you knock at a door that's fervently excited about opening it to you. But something happens. And you don't know what happened. You just know you're still on the outside of the door. Here's another lesson from God's word. And the humanity was that little servant girl. Do you remember the last time Peter talked to a servant girl? Oh, you don't. Didn't Peter, who denied the Lord three times, have to talk to some people about Jesus? Didn't he talk to a little servant girl about following Jesus earlier on in his life? These are the things that go through my mind. I have to share with you. My wife's like, do you always have to share the stuff that goes through your mind? Yes, I have to share with you because, because I don't understand. And then I'm like, maybe this is it. Because he definitely had an experience with a servant girl before. And he, remember, he, I don't know Jesus. This was the beginning of his denial. A little servant girl could have taken his life. And now a little servant girl could let him in. Maybe he's going to lose his life standing at the door knocking. I don't know. These are just things that happen in my mind, popcorning around, right? She doesn't know. She's so excited. And how does a praying, God-fearing, loving church respond to a little servant girl that says, the guy you're praying for is outside? Let me read to you in Greek what it says. You are crazy. <laughs> Actually, in King James, for my King James brother, thou art crazy. Modern day rendering for my message, friends, you are cray-cray. <laughs> There's nothing more godly than that, right, church? If we had a big giant church meeting, we're like, okay, let's pray for Israel or let's pray for something. And we all got together like on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night and when we're praying and someone's pounding on the door going, Israel's free, Israel's free. We're like, stupid people, let's go back to praying. <laughs> but Israel's free. They're, they're at the door, they're waiting. Okay, so here's the big question for you. How come doubt has been part of the faith that we have that's so loving from the very beginning? You think you're the first person to doubt your faith and doubt your prayers? You think the humanity of who we are is so apparent in this passage, I can only tell you this. If you came in here this morning praying about different things in your life and then constantly asking God, why are you, is your prayer not being answered? Or God, why do I not believe what you've told me? Or God, why, why, why? Let me just give you an answer. Because you keep asking why. 
Where in the Bible does it substantiate at any time in any place us asking God why? We ask why, and if he doesn't explain it to us, then that's the answer. Then we move on down the road. When he wants to explain it to you, does it mean you will even understand? No. Why did, why did he take our fourth grandchild? And why did he take her just weeks before she was due? Why couldn't you just take her early in the pregnancy? Why would you let my daughter go all the way through that? Feeling her and watching her grow and all the different things, and then picking a name and us getting excited. And then why would you ask her to deliver that child no longer here? You, you spend time long enough in that why, you won't be at church on Sunday. You spend long enough time in that why, you won't be here in church in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, months, or a year from now. You spend enough time in that why, and you're going to be caught up in your prodigal saying, but I raised them to be a godly kid. And look where they are today. And you're going to go down the why road. And all your ministry and all the different things that God has gifted you and built you to do, they're going to go right out the window with your why. And it's not going to stop anything, right? God still loves the prodigal whether you're praying for the prodigal or not. The prodigal had to wake up in the pig slop and realize, man, in my father's house right now, anything I could be doing over there would be better than what I'm doing right here. The prodigal had to wake up. The prodigal had to make peace with who God was. We pray, and we work, and we labor, and we put our clothes on, and we follow because it's not about understanding what the angel is saying or what could happen to us or what couldn't happen to us. It's because this is the day that the Lord has made, and you need to rejoice and be glad in it. Good day or a bad day? That's why I always tell you guys, I try to tell you every Sunday, you made it to church on Sunday, you're winning. There are people watching right now that need to get back into church. If you're watching right now, you need to get back in church. You need the community of God. Do not ostracize yourself from the community of God. We all need the community of God. And if you need help and you're struggling and you're watching right now, come get the help you need. We would love to give it to you. We would be blessed, right? Is, is the blessing, whose blessing is it? You have a situation financially and you can't afford to eat or you can't afford to do something and we show up with food. Who's really receiving the blessing? You're like, well, I am because I'm hungry. No, the people who get to bring in the food. I've, I've learned this about serving God. You can out-bless God. The people who are making that food for you and the families that are seeing the value in that are being blessed exponentially more than you receiving that food and eating it. What it's reminding you is today you eat crow, today you eat manna, but tomorrow when you eat steak, go find somebody else who's eating crow and manna and share your steak with them, right? This is simple stuff. Don't overthink it. Don't overdo it. Just remember this. When you pray, receive it in faith, Matthew 21. That doesn't mean you receive it and you've got to work on your faith. With whatever faith you have, if you pray, Lord, not my will be done in this, but with this prodigal child, have your way with this prodigal child. You know how far away he is or she is. You wake them up. You send your spirit to wake them up. And then I'm going to hold fast. I'm always telling parents and posting stuff on certain pages and sites, hey, friendship is always optional with me. You don't have to be my friend always optional. If me and you being friends means I have to compromise my relationship with Christ, then it's off the table, and it's, that's just the way that it's going to be, right? I have to value my relationship with God over every other relationship, and, and if your child does not value your relationship with God first, then that's the answer that you've been waiting to hear. Then act accordingly. 
What's more loving? Someone told me this morning um, they have a hard time when like a child, a child dies like in a, a third world country, right? We're talking about. So a child dies in a third world country. What's more loving? A God that would kill a child or a God that says to David and Bathsheba, the child is with me now. But, but this child was conceived in sin and the father was even killed horrifically. The child is with me now. A loving God is not going to punish a child that does not have the ability to rebuke the Holy Spirit and not make a decision of faith. So church, what kind of comfort can I give you the next time you have someone who's lost a child? The child is with him now. In the world that we live in right now, what's more kind? Let's just be honest here. I'm worried about my grandkids. I'm worried about what they will grow up with. I'm worried about the new norms that are being given to them. It's not what I would ask. But who am I to ask the Lord what's more loving? But it doesn't seem fair. When did fair have anything to do with life? When did fair have anything to do with death? It's been appointed to a man to be born. It's been appointed to a man to die. It's going to happen either way. But to be with the Lord in the end is the real victory. So what happens after all this? I don't know. He gets out. Peter gets out. And we're going to find out that Herod has all of the jailers killed. Executed. Because according to Romans law, the person that you were guarding... If they escaped, then whatever their penalty was is now upon you, right? So all those guys who were watching Jesus, they all should have been killed too. Remember the Sanhedrin worked with them to bribe them to say, but if you say you fell asleep, we'll work something out and you guys can continue on. Who knows if they're the same guards? But in this case, Herod says, no, I won't have anything to do with that. Death was his sentence, death is yours. I wondered in my mind, do you think that affected the other apostles or the other disciples knowing that his escape, God ordained, had these people killed? I love my curiosity. I get to share my curiosity. But here's what happens later on. Later on, Paul and Silas get arrested. And Paul and Silas are in a jail. And Paul and Silas have a miraculous earthquake that occurs. And Paul and Silas have the opportunity to leave. And you know what Paul and Silas do? They stay. And you know what the Bible tells us about the story of Paul and Silas? Is the jailer comes in weeping and wailing. Why? Because he knows in the earthquake that freed all of his prisoners, those punishments are now coming his way. And the jailer's overwhelmed with this sense of death that's gonna, it's imminent because of an earthquake. And when he comes in and their shackles are freed, by the way, the same thing as Peter, their shackles are off and they're sitting there in their jail cell, wounded from the earthquake, praying. In one case, God asked someone to get up and go from jail. In another case, God asked two guys to sit. And what happened? And now the rest of the story, right? Church, the rest of the story is Paul and Silas lead the jailer to faith. That's what's more significant than being free. How free are you really? If it's been appointed for you to be born and to die, how free do you really think you are? We overrate these things. We have a job to do. We're never going to be free. If we are followers of Christ, we naturally have enemies. We naturally have enemies. And if we're making things happen spiritually in our life, the attacks are going to come with it. 
So is there a set pattern about how we should deal with jail and not how we should not deal with it? No, there's no set pattern. What we should do is pray and trust God. Then whatever the result is, make peace with it. Spend as little time as possible asking why and spend as much time as saying, as saying okay, I'm putting my clothes on and following you now. Because in one case, it made perfect sense. And in another case, God gave him the ability to say, stand down. And I'm sure Herod is going insane, right? If you're that guy, if you're that over-the-top ruler, tyrannical leader, I'm thinking like Noriega, you know, if you're one of those guys and someone you had intended to publicly kill that was going to be a big thing for you is now free, and the, and, the, and the jailers are like, I don't know what happened, something happened or whatever. And he's like, oh my gosh, this sounds like what happened to my grandfather all over again. All over again. I did everything I could to hold this guy down, and he's gone. But like any good Herod, what does he really want to get back to? He wants to get back to having the people love him and adore him because he's a Herod. And he wants to be loved and recognized. So he found out at that time that down in Tyre and Sidon, those people were getting uh, upset about their grain income, and, and Herod was supplying grain to them. And so they, there was an opportunity for Herod to go down and speak publicly. You know, the great Herod shares the... So he said, at least I could do is go back to where the people can love me and apologize, and I can find out what I can do. And I'm going to read you 21. I'm already late. On the appointed day, Herod goes down to Tyre and Sidon to meet with his people. He put on his royal apparel, and he took his seat on the platform, and he began to deliver this incredible address to them. And he said, the people continued to cry out, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. Verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him dead because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. And that, my friends, is the end of Herod and the story. And we sit in here today and we wonder, when is justice going to come to those people that stand above us and persecute us and kill us and take away our liberties? And I tell you right now, church, justice is coming. Okay? And he's coming on a white horse. And when he does come, think about this. Okay, there's a new fascination with aliens. Oh, well, Pastor Jeff, can I pray with you about aliens? What? Aliens, there's this new thing they found out and the government said it's true. And I'm like, seriously, I have very little time in my life as it is. You already know how I feel about counseling church. But aliens, two different sessions about aliens. You know why? Because a billion people are getting ready to go somewhere, somewhere very soon. And they need an excuse to explain where we went. We're going, church. And days like today, when you see stuff happening in Israel for no apparent reason to you, we're going. And it's been written down. And Herods may think they're ruling this place and running this place, and the Sanhedrin may think they're in charge. But when the Lord speaks and the angel of the Lord comes back, reconciliation is going to take place. Retribution will take base. For just as holy as our God is, he is also just. Amen? You're not going to mess with it. You said, but right now it feels like it's whatever. Who are we to say what it is and what it isn't? We go and we make and we teach and we baptize and we share the love of God with the broken people around us and everything else can take its place. Because worm food, Herod, has no opinion anymore. But is that going to stop him? No, because the next Herod is coming up. 
and the next Herod is behind him. And there will always be someone filling that role of the persecutor chasing the church. So what does that ultimately mean for us? We pray. We hold fast. We stop trying to de-chain ourselves. And we submit ourselves to this one fact that the good Lord loves us. And if he's asked us to go through it, Go through it knowing he wants you to learn from it and that what you learn from it will be a greater value to you than the miracle of being set free. Because sometimes he sets us free to walk, but sometimes he sets us free to sit in that same jail and simply show the love of God to those around us, right? I don't know what your situation is. I don't know what the Lord's asking you to do, but I do know this, he's asking. Would you join me in prayer as I ask the worship team to come back up And we will seek fervently this morning, Father God, to ask you what it is that you're asking us to go through. Father God, I know this morning, on behalf of every prodigal that's out there, I pray that the Holy Spirit would have the freedom to speak the truth to those who are held in bondage by their sins. If there's none righteous, not one, then who of us should stand in here and say, I've got it figured out? Well, that's just something that used to be my crutch. I don't have that crutch anymore. Lord, we all carry around baggage. We all carry around brokenness. We're all just one hour, one minute, and one moment away from falling back in to that sin that used to just rule and reign over us. But just as you set a time for Herod to be done, and just as you made a way for Peter to walk through 16 guards, chains, and a large gate unscathed, You are working things out in our life. You are guiding and you are directing. And yet the noise, once again, Father, the noise around us is so loud that we can't hear it. I pray this morning that you would speak and your people would hear. Go, get dressed, make, share the love of God, baptize, and then teach them and tell them what the God God of heaven, who's so alive and so in control and never been anywhere other than here, I will never leave you, never forsake you. And I know these times and the world around you seem so desperate, but it's okay. It's been desperate before, and it's going to be more desperate very soon. But take heed of this. I will never leave you and never forsake you. And when our time is done, and when it's been predetermined for that last breath to be taken, Father, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Praise God in heaven that everything that makes no sense to me one day will. Thank you for this opportunity this morning to come before you. May everything we continue to say and do bring honor and glory to and through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
It's so good to be with you today. Isn't that good to be in the house of the Lord? Amen and amen. We're so glad you're here. Don't forget, next week we're back here where we'll continue our study in Acts. Pastor Jeff will be with us again. And by all means, remember, let's remember what he says. Keep the main thing the main thing. Go out and be at this day, church. We love you all. May you have a great week. God bless.